0: Welcome to Philosophy Mixed, the Texas State Philosophy Department
1: and KTSW's podcast on the philosophy of everything. In this series, we're focusing on justice and the American prison system in correlation with the common experience project going on on campus this year.
0: I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Rebecca Farinas of the Texas State Philosophy Department.
2: Yes. Hi, Kimberly. It's so good to be back with our Philosophy Mixed podcast series.
1: Our guests today are Shannon Fitzpatrick, the director of the Office of Attorney for Students, uh, along with Lewis Bowden, a student of criminal justice here at Texas State who has met and worked with women on death row here in Texas.
3: It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you.
1: And we're also joined by the director of the Texas State Department of Criminal Justice, Dr. Christine Sellers.
4: Hi, Kimberly. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me to this.
1: Thank you all for joining us today. So we're actually going to be talking a bit about uh, specifically women in the American prison system and the injustices that they face. We're going to be speaking on how these women end up in prison and their unique circumstances as women and as mothers uh, behind bars. So the documentary focuses on a group of college students who went to a high security, maximum security women's prison in their area. And they talked with a group of women there and basically taught a class on feminism and kind of encouraged discussion on these women's experiences um, as women who are in prison. And in these discussions, they explore different topics that impact them on a daily basis and uh, that would continue to impact them um, for the women who would eventually be released from prison. Uh, A really great documentary, I definitely recommend it. It's now at the Alkek Library, available to rent, um, thanks to the wonderful people at the Philosophy Department for getting that secured for us at our library. So you can now watch it, whether you're a faculty or a student, Um, and it is a really great watch to Uh, see these women's journey through this educational experience and listening to their stories and uh, really the way that the
2: justice system works with women. Yes, I thought it was really really a great documentary. And it was perfect uh, to have um, uh, our panel there to discuss in that feminist issues and women incarceration seem to dovetail in so many ways. And the documentary really brought up some broad categories in ways that the discussions in the prisons did dovetail with feminist philosophy. Um, They talked about uh, feminism as a doctrine for equality for all people. They talked about problems and issues of the inmates as far as body and sexuality, which, of course, is very specific to the um, uh, special problems of women incarceration rather than male incarceration although exactly how specific that would be something to really to be opened up and and talked about it uh, in in more um, um, depth uh, they talked about privilege in our society as far as um, the causes of the incarceration in both a personal and a structural way. And then they did um, mention and um, go into the intersection between the personal and the political and that intersectionality that lends towards broader discussions about how um, people that are interested, citizens, uh, can actually work towards correcting some of the major problems um, in our prison system today. I just wanted to start off with a little philosophical context. So um, as we do on Philosophy Mixed, and then we'll really turn it over uh, to um, asking our panelists uh, to comment on some questions that Kimberly and I have prepared. Our topic today is a contemporary ethical and criminal justice problem. I think they really go hand-in-hand, the moral and uh, the criminal justice or legal and political aspects, uh, which seems to be escalating as the incarceration of women in the United States is on the rise. We want to ask what may be some of the personal and political issues at the center of this rise. I am astonished at the long history in the United States which has both warned us and possibly contributed to the present day situation. In 1913, Jane Adams wrote an infamous article for the Ladies' Day Journal advocating for the women's right to vote. Adams also spoke out in that article about the injustice of the criminalization of women in terms of prostitution. I think her insights are shockingly relevant today and we can feel shamed in a sense of our lack of moral development. Jane Adams wrote, quote, "A homeless young girl looking for a lodging may be arrested for soliciting on the streets and sent to prison for 6 months, although there is no proof against her save the impression of the policeman." A young girl under such suspicion may be obliged to answer the most harassing questions put to her by the city attorney, with no woman near to protect her from insult. She may be subjected to the most trying examination conducted by a physician in the presence of a policeman, and no matron to whom to appeal. At least, these things happen constantly in the United States, in Chicago, for instance, but possibly not in the Scandinavian countries, where juries of women sit upon such cases. Women whose patience has been many times tested by wayward girls and who know the untold moral harm which may result from such a physical and psychic shock." End quote. So I think this brings us into our discussions in the myriad of problems that are basketed in um, the situation of the rise of uh, women's incarceration in the United States. Our
0: first question for uh, you today is, do you think that there should be specific laws which take women's mitigating factors seriously? So some of the things that you mentioned Actually, in that quote by Jane Addams, a lot of the things that uh, she mentioned, uh, you know, with the issues of prostitution and, you know, struggling in poverty, leading to these arrests and incarceration of women. Um, So basically, our first question is, do you think women are more able to help each other by understanding and stopping sexual abuse and violence, uh, which is often a major factor in women's incarceration? What role do women play in in this scope of things?
4: That's a big question Mm -hmm. and um, probably a a five-part question. So probably the first thing to do is to, um, the first part of your question dealt with, you know, should we take into account mitigating circumstances? And what are those mitigating circumstances? Mm -hmm. You raised uh, domestic violence and uh, sexual assault, uh, child sex abuse. These are clearly common among women who find themselves in prison. In addition, you've got to take into account all kinds of childhood factors, including lack of supervision, neglect. There could be even going back even further into infancy. um, And and prior to infancy, prenatal care, did did the mother um, take the necessary steps to provide the best prenatal care for the unborn child? And once the child was born to be able to provide for that infant in ways that are not only physically nurturing but also intellectually and emotionally nurturing and there are some women who have not had that experience of knowing how to to parent and then it just gets passed on so it can go all the way back to to infancy in terms of of what a woman who is in prison has had to face starting with infancy through childhood through adolescence, uh, again, the, the, the witnessing domestic violence, the experiencing physical abuse, sexual abuse, running away to escape these stressors uh, could be um, depression, all kinds of psychological issues, emotional issues that uh, are piled on because of these, this childhood history. Uh, running away has its own challenges. How is a woman on the street or a young woman on the street going to be able to, to fend for herself? In all probability, she's going to be selling drugs or selling herself. And uh, to what extent is she victimized through that process, particularly when she's still a juvenile? Um, and, in fact, there is a movement um, to, uh, to to shift the attention from uh, child prostitutes to the notion of child sex trafficking victims. That is, they are victims. They are not offenders. Their pimps are the offenders. Um, but that's, that's something that's um, really just in the last five or ten years that, that we've had a growing awareness. Uh, of those issues, and so you've got running away. You've got the economic issues. You've got the education issues. Uh, particularly, as she runs away. She's she's not going to school. She's not uh, in a position to better herself or to um, to to put herself in a position where she can can um, take care of herself. Um, then she gets into relationships. There's um, male influence uh, is is a key factor. A, a lot of women who commit crimes are committing them. In, as an adjunct to males committing crimes. And so you've got male influence and then you've got negative relationships with, with males in terms of uh, domestic violence, intimate partner violence, uh, pregnancy, having the, the challenges of raising a child. I mean, God knows uh, a, a middle-class woman has enough issues raising a child. Imagine what it's like for someone with these, with these challenges that, that they're facing. Um, in the, in the the film, uh, that we saw last night, one of, w- one woman expressed I, I, the term tired. We just got tired. So many of us just got tired. And when you, when you look at this litany of what, what really constitute mitigating factors, you can see how tired they got. How do you live a a life of a middle-class woman when you're not and when you have all of these strikes against you, when you have all of these obstacles in your way. Uh, So crime becomes uh, almost a necessity to survive for these women.
2: And I think in the film, um, the um, really talked about uh, that uh, kind of despair right that ultimate despair Um, also um, uh, thought of it in terms of um, uh, recidivism right that uh, they get tired and so when they do um, get out of prison uh, they're just have been almost victimized again through more oppression right right so how can they have the strength to come back and compete uh, in our um, everyday world here Mm -hmm. in the united states
4: that's where i see the dovetail with feminism because feminism is about empowering women and here we have these women who feel so powerless to, to surmount all these obstacles, and how do you provide that empowerment to them? Um, it's, it's, it's a Herculean task, I think.
5: Well, and I think that's what you get in today, that you have to understand, there is still a substantial power difference between men and women in this country. Mm-hmm. There is not equal pay for equal work. Um, and just look at the Me Too movement. Harvey Weinstein, Roger Ailes, um, Bill O'Reilly on Fox News had this horrible behavior that continued for years. How could that happen? And you know, people say, "Well, that that you know shouldn't exist." Well, of course it does, and it will continue as long as you have the power imbalances. Um, and we currently, if you look at this, we currently incarcerate over uh, well, approximately twelve thousand women. In the Texas prison system, is there something we can be doing better? Of course, Um, but as Dr. Sellers has said, you have to unpack this from a variety of angles. This is a really complex issue, and if you look at laws to mitigate those issues, there are some of those, but there's also treatment. Um, as, as we just heard, you can start with children, that helps a lot, but once women, you can't always stop this, once women get into these situations, rather than just lock them up and throw away the key, which is extremely expensive, and by the way, never works, um, putting these people into treatment systems helping them out so that they don't come back and they don't make those mistakes is going to be a lot more valuable i think in the long run and uh, one of the big issues a lot of women face is in in the prison system is economic inequality so we have that power imbalance but now you get into the economic inequality and that gets exacerbated you get charged with a crime and it's extremely difficult for women because they're often the primary caregiver with their children, um, and so when she enters, a woman enters the criminal court system, the wheels already fall, fall off an already uh, wobbly economic wagon. So I'd give you a case example. Um, number of years ago, I had a client who had, been at a function an afternoon barbecue or something where an ex-boyfriend got very very drunk so she offered to he was going to drive home she said no i will just i'll go ahead and take you home this time and he said okay so they're driving home he's passed out in the seat she's driving his car they get pulled over by a police officer because his registration sticker was out of date well the officer that's perfectly legitimate stopped by the officer He pulls him over and he asks, may I search your car? She says, well, it's not my car. I don't care what you do. And the guy was asleep at the car. Of course, he searches and finds some marijuana. And the other guy was too drunk to say anything. So he said, it's in the center console. It's next to you. You're under arrest for possession of marijuana. She had a two or three-year-old child at home. And now she spends a couple of days in jail waiting to get bonded out. and now is looking uh, the judge wouldn't give her a court appointed attorney in Hayes County at least we do that a lot less frequently now because we're trying to save taxpayer dollars but people like this end up getting really hurt because she's looking at paying a local attorney a not the most expensive by any means about twelve hundred dollars that's on top of fines and fees and costs and education courses and if she goes through this and can't pay, she's looking at six months in jail because she's unable to make some of these payments. Or they say, well, do community service in lieu of a fine. She's got a child. She's trying to put herself through school. She's working two different jobs trying to make ends meet. And so they're saying, you know, that's that's too bad. So these, that's just a college student in San Marcos, Texas. That's not some of the women who get the heavy stuff, but it shows you how difficult that this could be from an economic standpoint. Um, so that's, um, it's just, it's a, it's a really challenging issue when you talk about creating laws, because it's not just the laws, although it would be nice to have some more female judges, we have a very small percentage of judges who are women, a small percentage of prosecutors who are women, uh, district attorneys, county attorneys, uh, who can understand these issues. But even when they are, there is this societal pressure to be tough on crime. So lock them up and throw away the key. Now you can vote for me. Are you scared yet? Well, vote for me. And when we have that attitude, we're not seeing the long-term impacts on human lives. If nothing else, in the very least, the cost of the system is breaking. Uh, I think, uh, Dr. Sellers, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe last year TDCJ's budget was $2.3 billion. It, it's
4: huge. Yeah. It's huge.
5: So you, we're spending billions, $23,000 a year to incarcerate um, 142,000 people in Texas. So we're spending massive amounts of money and yet not putting it into the resources to prevent some of this stuff to happen in the first place. Something we, we mentioned earlier,
0: uh, I, I believe it was you, uh, Dr. Sellers, that mentioned um, – When it comes to crime that women are involved in, uh, usually it's uh, because a a man is involved in in some way, shape, or form. There's the pay gap. Um, There is definitely a power imbalance between men and women in this country. And women hold that subordinate position, and especially in a lot of these communities uh, that are experiencing levels of poverty, um, this can be heightened even more so. Um, So my question for both of y'all is, uh, do you believe that the subordinate position of women in society contribute to their criminalization in the prison system and uh, institutionalization?
4: Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, to, to reiterate, very often when women are committing crimes, there is often uh, a male uh, counterpart who is also arrested at the same time. Um, it's not unusual. Uh, if, if you think about um, domestic violence, and I don't know how well you know about like the power and control wheel, where um, the, the threat of physical violence is held together by these nonviolent control tactics, this intimidation, this this pressuring, this threat to harm uh, children, uh, for example, um, economic uh, control. Uh, so there are these all of these um, nonviolent control tactics that um, not only um, get the woman to do you know what he wants her to do in in just in. Regular life, but also in terms of of committing crimes, and so uh, a man can use these nonviolent control tactics to pressure women into committing crimes, to pressure women into not saying something uh, if they witness their their partner uh, committing a crime, uh, and women do get arrested for not uh, not telling on uh, their partner
2: as well. They become an accessory. And I think we saw that in the film, Uh, they called it uh, boyfriend Boyfriend crimes, which I thought was a good tag. And to where um, uh, one testimony, uh, one woman was telling her story that uh, she was um, hours away from the crime. The crime was committed against her family. And she was at work in the hospital, she was a caregiver. And she's in prison for life. It's a boyfriend crime. Right, that she was accused of knowing
4: that the boyfriend was going to commit the crime. Um, so, so yes, um, in, in those situations where a woman is, is subordinate to the man, that kind of behavior can happen. Either she carries out crimes or she um, does not know... Uh, it does know about the crime and doesn't say anything, or in in that case, uh, may not even know about the crime, but is associating with someone who um, who does crime. So
5: that that goes back to Abraham Lincoln and his assassination, and the first woman to be hanged by this country, uh, Mary Surratt, I believe. Um, they said you should have known what your son was up to, and therefore, right. you're going to die for that. And she hung. Uh, yes. So. Um Ms. Fitzpatrick, do you
2: find that that control dynamic, that power control dynamic, compounded uh, with the aspect of um, 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 blaming women uh, just by
5: association, is mimicked in the court system? Oh, absolutely. And as, as a former prosecutor, I can tell you that sometimes even we talk about it, it. It would be good to have more women judges and more women prosecutors, but there are challenges even with that. Because as a prosecutor, if I had a woman who was um, a if there was a victim of a crime, a lot of times women will view that person more harshly than they would a man because they bring in their own situation to say, well, my grandmother would never let me go out at night wearing clothes like that. My mother would never allow that kind of language or have tattoos or, you know, fill in the blank. Or be a prostitute. Or Certainly be a prostitute, any of those things. And so we still have that baggage from days gone by that we have this virtuous woman out there that we hold up that's, uh, that ship has sailed from the standpoint of the mid-century view. But we' still the people in power still cling to that. And you know, you look at our legislature. They are looking at bills. They don't ask women, What do you think about standardized testing? Because most teachers are women, but they're not asked about that. That's just an edict that's given. Uh, They're not asked about bathroom bills. They're not asked about a number of things and how these laws are put into place. But then again, that's the people that we elect, and that's participation in the democracy.
0: There's also that uh, economic prejudice there. uh, That mindset basically that, uh, you know, we assume that, well, there's thousands of other options out there for you to choose. You didn't have to choose crime, but, uh, you know, for someone who's middle class, upper class, or living in the one percent, you have thousands of options, but when you're living in poverty, there are very few, and and crime happens to be one of the few options that you have.
3: And you're right about the options. When people say, you just could have done another path. Well, for example, one of my friends who was from California, I grew up in Compton, California uh, if we all know its reputation. and her father began molesting her when she was about like, five or six and then her other sisters as well and um, she was she was there. And so imagine if he just starts there and then by the time she was thirteen or fourteen, she already had two dead children and who who didn't even make it to, one didn't even make it to a day old. And so whenever you have the, just imagine putting yourself in those shoes. I'm sorry, but how dare somebody say, you could have just had another option. Well, if you have that kind of, oh, that's that's what's going on in your life, you don't have many options. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then she ended up, and the jurors from her trial didn't care about her background and said, we're still going to send you to death. And, and now, and but now she's serving a reduced sentence. But still, just when people say that this is an option, you got to put yourself, you got to empathize with others, put yourself in other people's shoes. So you, because that that just that causes problems just with that quote.
5: Yeah, and Dr. Sellers last night, you had made a good comment about that, about those ranges of choices.
4: So criminologists. Call this um, socially structured opportunities that not everybody has the same uh, range of opportunities. That some some people people who live within the margins have a wide range of opportunities, and crime can be one of them. That's why we get white collar crime, and so some people even in that category will choose crime, but they have a host of other opportunities to 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 reach their goals. Whereas those who are living at the margins have much narrower ranges of choices, and again, crime is one of those choices. And so, the the opportunity and the the um, the opportunity to avoid crime is is much lower uh, among people living at the margins than than those that are living in mainstream society.
0: Another kind of addition to uh, that question, do you think that new laws which would allow women with children to maintain a family, um, even if they are incarcerated, uh, would that possibly work here in the United States, and have you seen that in your experience, and in what form would that take?
4: It does work in the United States. There are um, actually um, several states that have some form of um, uh, parenting opportunities for mothers who are incarcerated. And um, the the statistic is 70% of women who are in prison are mothers of, of dependent children. That's a lot. And um, there are states, not Texas uh, and not Florida where I came from, but um, the state of Washington has really been a leader in providing parenting opportunities for women in prison. Uh, they're, they're, program uh, can extend uh, to, uh, to keeping a child up up to maybe three years. Um, the state of New York has, has always had a program as well. It's a little bit shorter. I think it's about 18 months uh, that women can, can keep their children with them. Uh, but there are other, other states that have other um, lesser uh, opportunities for, for women to continue to parent their children. Uh, but for, for the most part in the United States, states don't do that because it's expensive. Um, to be able to provide a safe environment for children uh, in a prison requires uh, more, more by, by way of facilities than, than not having a nursery in, in the prison.
5: And in Texas, they get a day with mom, one day a year is all you're allowed to have <coughs> contact with your children
2: uh, one day a year
5: that's it and they get one and they could have one day a day with dad and a day with mom and that's it and so for women if you go into prison uh, for being a heroin addict and your child is five and you come out 10 years later and that child is 15 you don't know how to be the parent of a teenager and particularly probably an angry teenager because you've been away for the last 10 years of their life. Uh, They've been picked on at school because they have a parent in prison. They have been without a very needed parent. And and part of the problem is Texas is really a big state. So if you have somebody um, incarcerated in the Blaine Murray unit in Gatesville and you live in Brownsville, That's a good eight-hour drive away, and families simply can't take children in and out. It's a 16-hour round trip plus a day and all of that. So we have all these prisons, but they're not really functional. They've got far too much concertina wire for the women. That's not the issue they're dealing with. They need more psychological assistance, they need family assistance. We can do it if we're gonna do it right, but we need to treat these women as the mothers that they are and help them to become better mothers because most of them will someday get out. And then if they're just bouncing back with a very high recidivism rate, then we're still paying that $23,000 a year to keep them incarcerated when we don't have to. Mm
4: And then that recidivism is also compounded by their children who are negatively affected by their incarceration, mm-hmm. who also wind up in the system as well. That's and and so it, it just expands exponentially.
2: Yeah. Is there any daylight in Texas for programs uh, that I've read about, such as home tagging, um, or even some prisons um, in other countries that have um, areas um, within the prison uh, that are family areas. Um, I did read about one such prison in Mexico. Uh, they have recently put some extra funding into their um, certain prisons uh, in Mexico, especially in Mexico City. And they created family uh, some family zones and in the women's prison, And unfortunately, the male partners would never show up. In fact, the statistic was astounding how there was one inmate within the whole women prison that had regular visits from their male partner. Um, So... You know it's it, as you say, it's it's a tightly woven uh, problem. But it seems like there might be some hope in um, programs such as home tagging or um, families dealing with the architecture of the prison uh, to make it um, more conducive uh, to family interaction uh, for the women, their children, and hopefully even their partners. Not in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> no daylight there. No, no daylight. No, no Baby fall. steps.
4: <laughs>
5: yeah, they used to, they don't even, uh, in some of the women's prisons, they used to have very colorfully painted walls in the hallways and scenes of children playing, and now they're white. Um, so it's, it's very barren and sterile, and but those things cost money, and we certainly can't spend that kind of money as taxpayers, right? So that's where it comes down to. We, we enjoy saying that we lock them up and throw away the key, but people just don't realize how incredibly expensive that is. And when you put people behind that concertina wire, you need, we as a society have a responsibility to these women to help bring them back. And if you want to just try the lock them up and throw away the key motif, then they will be damaged, their children, their families. Prison is expensive. You know, they don't even provide a pillow in prison. Uh, They don't provide very much toilet paper. You have to buy it. If you're an inmate whose family's got money, then you can buy whatever toilet paper you need. Otherwise, you get a very limited amount. Uh, Feminine hygiene products, very limited amounts unless you buy that stuff. And if you can't afford to buy that, then you have to borrow it. And now somebody else has power over you because they're giving you the things that you need and that's frankly on the men's side that's what they've told oh, it's over toilet paper is one of the places the gangs have started up because you need it somebody else has it you can't afford it and the state of texas isn't going to give it to you so you know oh. Oh, and, yes. if
3: you, and if an inmate gets caught helping another inmate like that could then you can get a case, which is you can lose your property, you can be in seg for up to 15 days, you could lose your job.
4: And um, are
5: all sorts of consequences when you help out um, another inmate.
4: Yeah, and not to mention the black market prison economy right. where you provide services uh, in exchange for uh, commissary privileges, right. so to speak.
0: Right. So well, one of the final questions that we have for y'all today, um, and this is something that uh, we mentioned wasn't really touched on in the movie. Do you think that uh, racial prejudice compounds uh, problems of gender uh, in respect to women's criminalization and prolonged incarceration? Do you think that there's that racial prejudice there when uh, officers are, are arresting people uh, with the judicial system in general?
4: Well, that's that's a complex question. If you if you look at uh, self-report surveys. Uh, Delinquency surveys. If you ask kids, you know, have you committed, you know, just a whole laundry list of, of criminal acts, uh, you're not going to find any racial differences in in reported. Uh, both African American and um, uh, Caucasian kids are going to say yes, I did this at roughly the same rates. Uh, so, in those, in that respect, uh, obviously. African-Americans and Hispanics, um, to to a lesser degree, are disproportionately represented in the criminal justice system. If you look at um, more serious crimes, you do start to see a little bit of a racial disparity just in terms of who admits to committing crimes with with um, African-Americans reporting higher levels of more serious offenses, but the difference is not large um so that that um addresses sort of the well they're just doing it in in greater numbers but then we have to look at criminal justice decision making um and there's 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 always been a controversy in the criminal justice literature about decision makers and whether or not they take um race and only race into account when they're making their decision to arrest or to prosecute or to convict and so on. The literature is mixed on it, the research is mixed on, on uh, with, with some studies saying that when you account for the seriousness of the charge um, or you account for the prior record of the individual, then the, uh, there's equal treatment. Um, but others have found that even controlling for those legalistic factors there is still an extra legal factor taken into account which is race and class Um, uh, and to some extent gender but gender kind of works in in an opposite way because sometimes women are treated more leniently than men for the same offense but it depends on the offense if it's a heinous offense then the woman stepping outside of her feminine role is often treated more harshly so it's it it varies by offense um one of the other things that you also have to take into account is that by the time a person has gotten to prison a number of decisions have been made about them starting with the decision to arrest prosecute and so on Um, and ultimately what the sentence is. There is um, evidence of a cumulative effect, that there might be small effects at each decision point that result in a wide disparity when it comes to incarceration. And so little aggressions in terms of decision-making become a big aggression when we look at the incarcerated population, where there is definitely a clear disproportionate Uh, representation of of minorities in prison.
5: And we see that in the courts with um, the Supreme Court recently dealt with an expert witness in a number of death penalty cases out of Houston who testified in some cases without objection for the prosecution that blacks will commit more crimes than whites. Uh, they're more likely to re-offend. And so a jury says, okay, well, we're going to give you a death sentence because we're officially scared of you now. And the Supreme Court came back and said, yeah, you know what? No, that was wrong. And so those cases have been overturned. But the point is that's, that's part of what Dr. Sellers is talking about. One of those, there's so many pieces of this puzzle. It's not just one officer who doesn't like black people. It's not just one judge who doesn't like black people or brown people. It's not just one prosecutor who's trying to get reelected by being tough on crime. It's a variety of things that play into this throughout. It is systemic at some level that these small things that happen from the economy from getting you into a place where you'd even be looked at by an officer to all the way up to uh, a jury sentencing you saying that we can predict 20 years from now that you're going to be a danger and the irony of that is for women for example the women on death row now in the last 41 years there's not been a single incident of one woman hitting another woman or hitting, striking a guard, or doing any act of violence in 41 years. And yet, those juries have said, this woman is so dangerous, we need to kill her, because she will kill again. And it's an absurd proposition to do that, particularly when all the evidence says, no, the odds are, that's not why she killed in the first place, and the odds of her doing that again are extremely slim. But the prosecution can get a jury to believe that future dangerous stuff and it's it, it can be extremely frustrating, but it goes across the spectrum.
0: Yeah, and it, it definitely becomes that kind of us versus them mentality. It, it's told us through uh, you know our, our culture basically that if someone's in prison, they were put there for some reason and that that's why they're there, they're too dangerous to be outside. I appreciate how you how you touched on that with the women on death row who haven't hurt anybody.
5: And yeah. they are, to a person, some of the nicest people. I this <laughs> sounds very bizarre, but they are some of the nicest people you would ever meet.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's like when we met them for the first time, it was like, cheers. And like, this is, these aren't dangerous people at all. They're all... They,
5: they're, oh. <laughs> they have, in some cases, they might have committed a terrible act. But their future dangerousness is not uh, an issue, and trying to predict that is what is so uh, out of skew with our Texas judicial system.
2: Um, I was really impressed also with the film in that we got to really participate from the inside out rather than most of us. uh, We... Participate the other way, right from the outside, trying to look in, and um, so about understanding the racial tension in the prison culture itself with the inmates is—is is that an issue? Um, you know, you, you were referring to the attitude of some women in, inmates tend to be unstoppable. You know, they do tend to, uh, I mean, there are some people, um, as we saw in the film, that had, I thought, a remarkable attitude um, in respect to what they've been through in their lives and the hopelessness that they could feel. Um, so does prison culture, is uh, does racism exist in prison culture? And I think the other part of my question is, um, how do women support each other in prison life. Uh, is that a factor in their incarceration?
5: I will say that the race issue seems to be much more pronounced in the men's prisons than it is with the women's prisons. Um, it's virtually, it's not non-existent, but it's almost non-existent with the women. But with the men, it's much more pronounced. But there's there's a whole variety of reasons. That doesn't happen simply because uh i don't like black people there there is some of that but there is also things that happen in the prison system that foster that and create some of this which we talked about earlier about just the the black market and things of that nature so uh, yeah it is different with women than men
4: very different um i i uh, would echo that that um Gender seems to bind women in ways that it doesn't bind men, uh, and race seems to separate men, uh, whereas it doesn't seem to separate women. Uh, and again, the tensions tend to revolve around incivilities. Uh, she lied about me, or she took something, or you know, I'm, I'm just tired of hearing her talk. Uh, it's, it's the same thing you see in you know, middle school, uh, high school,
2: um or families. Families. <laughs>
4: Faculties. <laughs> um, and, um and so I think the the, the tensions are, are clearly gendered. But yeah, y- you don't you don't see that those racial divisions along the same line. Now, there are some divisions that I've noted uh by age and length of time in the prison where newer, shorter term uh inmates tend to be tougher they they tend to be less accepting of uh, being in the prison they they resist more and so uh they can cause problems for the lifers the ones who just want to do their time and get through the day uh, so, so there is some tension there, but but I I would have to say that's that's certainly not a racial thing.
0: Well, thank you to all three of you for uh, providing so much input, and uh, you know, especially with all of your experience put together, uh, working with these women, and you know, being inside these prisons and understanding the culture that surrounds the whole system and the the prison system as well so i do want to thank you all again for joining us today so we do uh, have like a couple mentions um if you are listening and you're interested in participating in some way helping out any incarcerated individuals who um, may need someone to write to or you know books to read there is the inside books project um at the uac um the common experience team is a uh, Basically, the theme is on justice this uh, this year. So the Common Experience and KTSW is um, working together with the Inside Books Project and doing book drives for prisoners within Texas. Um, and there's also a website, WriteAPrisoner.com. Uh,
3: it's a website where inmates have asked families or friends to be able to meet people, to talk to other people, I'll share they I'll share experiences about their lives or the, really what's going on out here, which because Their lives are very, uh, from what they, their knowledge of uh, what's going on out here can be very limited. So they will try to just make friends uh, with people out here. And the ones I met on that website are (laughs) some of the sweetest people.
5: But the families have to pay, I will say, on write a prisoner, they will have to pay $50 a year to keep those websites up, so we would encourage people. You can send an email through that at the cost of a stamp of 50 cents, but if you just write them the old-fashioned snail mail, you can do that for years, then they can take that site down and then you can just have that conversation. It's not the financial burden on the family. But they are desperate for information about the outside world. one of the women we've talked with, who's been there for almost 40 years, Pam Perillo, she's not seen a cell phone. She doesn't know what a cell phone does. Oh. Uh, the technology has just passed these people by years ago, and she's a lead trainer for Patriot Paw. She trains dogs for disabled veterans. And it's a fantastic program, but she wants to know, and these other inmates, they want to know about the wor- what's going on in the world, what's, what's happening, what about all these issues that are going on, because they all hope someday to be out of prison and... They they don't want to just hit. They they get a few reruns on a few little channels on the on a group TV. But for the most part, they don't get much. They don't get newspapers. They don't get internet. Uh, certainly don't get internet. Mm-hmm. Nothing with computers. So. Anything that you could say about the outside world, everything from Hurricane Harvey or just the rains today or we're in a drought and all of those things, they adore getting just information about the world.
2: Um, We would also mention that that information will be posted on the KTSW and the Philosophy Department's website Mm -hmm. where you can find this podcast. Um, So I also wanted to thank you all. It's been so informative. I've learned so much. What about you, Kimberly? This has definitely been really eye-opening.
0: And watching the documentary last night, The Gray Area, is in Alkek now. Um, available for checkout, whether you are a faculty or just a student. It is a a really well-made documentary, very informative, and a lot of the stuff we talked about today uh, kind of stemmed from questions that we thought of while we were watching it and uh, kind of some information that we gathered from it as well. And um, Again, thank you all for uh, coming in, uh, sharing your uh, knowledge and experience. This is KTSW 89.9.